Channing, and I'm Elise, and this is the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We focus on feminist interpretation of scriptures and follow the LDS Come Follow Me manual as a guide for study. We understand scriptures can be a tricky endeavor for readers, but we also believe sacred texts contain compelling examples of loving and liberating relationships with the divine, others, and ourselves. We hope you'll join us in exploring the problems and promises of sacred text with imagination, critique, and celebration to reveal what we feel is the loving and liberating heart of scripture. While Mormonism, with its iconic floral foyer couches, is our background, we follow our faith and our God on the winding path of spirituality over institution and connection over condemnation. We are fellow wanderers, weavers, and doubters. If you found yourself feeling a little too faithful for some and not enough for others, welcome. We've saved you a seat on the soft chairs. This podcast is funded by our listeners' generous donations. If you'd like to support our work, connect with us on Patreon or on our website at www.thefaithfulfeminist.com. Hi, friends. Welcome to this week's episode. Today, we'll be covering the Psalms again, and a couple of the Psalms that the manuals assigned are as follows, 49 through 51, 61 through 66, 69 through 72, 77 and 78, and 85 and 86. And these are for the dates August 15th through the 21st. We'd like to offer a content warning for this episode for sexual assault and violence, rape, incest, cursing, and the recent Associated Press article. We also wanted to mention, just because the last couple of times that we've edited and produced the podcast, our mics have picked up on a little bit of background noise, and in case any of our listeners were like, what the heck is happening? Well, we'll tell you. We have two four-legged little ones that are joining both of us in our separate recording studios. My dog's name is Lulu. She's so cute and so sweet, but every time I talk, she gets so excited, like I'm talking to her. And Elise, her puppy, is named Toddy, and she is just a little ball of activity. So if you hear anything in the background, just know it's our little friends saying hello to you. As we move into the content for this week's episode, we wanted to give a little nod to the Come Follow Me manual that assigned these specific psalms to focus on the atonement, repentance, and forgiveness, as well as the action of bearing testimony. Some of the unassigned psalms cover topics such as the praise of God, prayers for protection and mercy, messianic psalms, which are psalms that are focused around Jesus Christ, and finally, prayers of gratitude. As we prepared for this episode, we found it really difficult to ignore the parallels between this week's assigned texts, particularly Psalms 51, and also the current events that are happening, especially in regards to church news, hence all of the content warnings at the beginning of the episode. The manual has a really heavy focus this week on repentance and forgiveness. In the manual, they say, quote, to help class members better understand repentance and feel inspired to repent often, you might suggest they search Psalms 51 with this question in mind. What does it mean to repent? And for a bit of context, Psalms 51, the section header says, David pleads for forgiveness after he went into Bathsheba. 
aka David is asking for God's forgiveness after he raped Bathsheba. If you haven't listened to our two-part episodes about Bathsheba with our friend Amber Richardson, we really encourage you to do so because that will give you a little bit more background around what David is repenting for and why in this psalm. A few verses from chapter 51 read, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy love according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. In many Christian denominations, Ash Wednesday is a holy day of prayer and fasting which falls on the first day of Lent. Psalm 51 is often used as the litany, which is a form of prayer used in services and processions. Unlike the translation we're reading from, which mentioned Bathsheba by name, other books include the same psalm without a reference to Bathsheba. Of this, Reverend Dr. Will Gaffney writes in her blog post titled, Ritualizing Bathsheba's Rape, says, quote, Now that we are really talking about sexual violence and harassment in and out of the church, the hashtag MeToo and hashtag ChurchToo, and calling once beloved figures to account for their sexual predations, figures like Bill Cosby, R. Kelly, and Michael Jackson, and laicizing priests, bishops, and cardinals, perhaps perhaps we should stop allowing David to get away with structuring his act of contrition around an abstract concept and tell him to leave his gift on the altar and first make peace with his sister. And perhaps we should repent for our treatment of the survivors of rape in and out of scripture, our coddling of rapists, our refusal to hold great men accountable, end quote. And if you're anything like us, this psalm paired with Gaffney's words leads us to think about our modern day church, its protection of perpetrators over victims and survivors, and its continual structural practice of abuse. Early last week, the journalist Michael Resendez wrote an entire expose for the Associated Press titled Seven Years of Sex Abuse, How Mormon Officials Let It Happen. If you haven't read the article and if you, ha- if, if you have the capacity mm-hmm. and the wherewithal and the emotional well-being to do so, I encourage you to read it and not turn away from the real abuse and consequences of the church's policies and practices. That said, this article is difficult to read. It is a harrowing, detailed, and triggering look at incest, rape, and sexual abuse, and how the church encourages its cover-up. And although the church handbook from 2010 claims, quote, the first responsibility of the church in abuse cases is to help those who have been abused and protect those who may be vulnerable to future abuse. Abuse cannot be tolerated in any form, end quote. Victims, survivors, and affected parties know and have known that this is not the case. The line that the church's first responsibility is to the abused and to protect victims is not true. And actually, when Channing and I were discussing how we wanted to approach this topic in the episode, Channing said two really powerful things. First of all, she said, this is not new news. Like sexual abuse in the church, allowed by the church, covered up by the help of the church has always happened. And the church's helpline, this is the line that's discussed in that Associated Press article. This is a kind of like a hotline that bishops can call in the event of abu- abuse. But then the hotline 
tells the bishops not to report any abuse to the authorities. This hotline has been around since 1995. So if this article feels like brand new news to you, we encourage you to ask yourself why. Perhaps you can ask yourself, how has my privilege afforded me the safety and comfort to not know about these things? The second thing that Channing said to me is, look, it's not the responsibility of victims and survivors to educate, fight, and organize around issues of sexual abuse. Yet, unfortunately, this continues to be the case. And this conversation happened when we were kind of going back and forth between what is our, what do we feel called to talk about? What do we feel responsible to talk about? But also, like, what do we have the capacity to talk about? (laughs) Also, what do we have the capacity to talk about? And why is it that the responsibility or the duty or the weight of education and information falls so heavily on victims and survivors of abuse. So to everyone listening, please know that there are so many survivors, especially during this time with what's going on with this article and what's going on with the church, who are struggling, who are triggered, who are hurt, and who are so exhausted. They don't have the capacity or the responsibility to educate, to talk, to entertain your questions, to listen to your stories of abuse. So please stop placing this weight on them. And I think a gentle, loving word to victims and survivors, your experience is valid. We wish that it never happened and your triggers are valid. Yeah, as a survivor of abuse and assault, like it's actually really healing to like hear you say those things and give those gentle reminders. And I also think it's well placed here to say like if this article and all of the commentary that's happening around it is like bringing some stuff up for you, find a qualified mental health care professional to help you because survivors and other like people who are like deep in the fight right now don't have the space to be able to carry their load and yours. So if you feel like you're carrying a load, find someone qualified to help you. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. And I think kind of along the same lines as what we're outlining, the ways that victims and survivors have known that this is not new news, that this continues to happen um, and the rage that comes with that and the isolation and the loneliness that comes with that The article states, quote, but one affidavit in the sealed records, which repeatedly says the church condemns child sexual abuse, also suggests the church is more concerned about the spiritual well-being of perpetrators than the physical and emotional well-being of young victims who also may be members of the faith, end quote. And again, like we said, this is not new news that the church is more concerned with its reputation and the spiritual, I'm doing air quotes, the spiritual well-being of perpetrators, then it is truly concerned with protecting victims. Funny too then, and in my notes I have like insert TikTok audio, the, the audio that's like funny, but not funny, <laughs> ha ha, funny, weird. Right? That's, so well, that's what goes here, right? Like <laughs> it's funny too then how a talk from Russell M. Nelson titled We Can Do Better and Be Better appears in this week's Come Follow Me outline alongside the topic of repentance and forgiveness that are talked about in Psalms 51 about David's rape of Bathsheba and also in Psalms 85 and 86. 
book. So as we were going through reading it, on one hand, we were reminded how hypocritical the institution of the church is, how bold it is for our leaders to call individual members to repent and change and do and be better, when at the same time, our leaders in power and in the institution completely refuse to do the same. Whether it be regarding sexual abuse, racism, homophobia, transphobia, ableism, etc., the church refuses to repent, change, and do better. And then, on the other hand, it's also upsetting and ironic how the calls to repentance apply only to some individuals, like those often marginalized and harmed, rather than others, like those in high visibility positions of power and leadership. So then what are we to make of the key point of this conference talk with Russell M. Nelson? What do we do when that talk connects to repentance and change? What a wonderful opportunity, we think, to use the words of the prophet against him, those in power and the institution. And this is a case uh, where I really resonate with the words of Cynthia and Susan from the At Last She Said It podcast. And they say sometimes on the podcast, like, we don't believe our own stuff. And I think that this definitely is also applicable here. In the qu- In the talk and included in the manual is this quote from Russell M. Nelson, and it's under the heading, Repentance Means Change. The quote reads, quote, When Jesus asks you and me to repent, he is inviting us to change our mind, our knowledge, and our spirit. He is asking us to change the way we love, think, serve, spend our time, listen closely, treat our wives, and teach our children, and even care for our bodies. Nothing is more liberating or more crucial to our progression than is a regular, daily focus on repentance. Repentance is not an event. It is a process. And when we choose to repent, we choose to change. We allow the Savior to transform us into the best version of ourselves. So from here we ask, what would it look like for the church to repent and ask forgiveness It would look like systemic change. Like those two things cannot be pulled away from each other. To repent and to ask for forgiveness means to change even, not even even, but like especially for the church structure as an institution. It would look like transparency and efforts at repair and reparation. It would look like an inversion of the hierarchy where the last are first and the first are last. It would look like honoring and protecting the most marginalized at all costs. No more secret lawyers and hotlines. No more hoarding money and misusing tithes. No more untrained clergy. No more closed-door guilt-ridden interviews. No more old, rich, cishet white men in power. And I think this is just the tip of the changes that are required if the church institution and those in power were to truly repent and change their ways. So if President Nelson, who is the damn prophet of the church, has the audacity and the power to say, we can do better and be better, then fucking do it. Then do it. Like, I don't. Yeah. This is not the only time that we have wanted to curse on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But for me, it seems quite, quite necessary and relevant. Um, And I think what I also like about this portion, talking about repentance and change, is that that change should not be a trickle-down thing where we have to only focus our attention on one piece before we can get to making other changes in the church. 
a systemic change looks like a radical deconstruction of the church so that all parties' needs are met. Yeah. And also, I think a really important distinction to make here is on a focus on the word systemic, right? Like a systemic change is one that happens within the institution and it's not reliant on individual members at the grassroots levels of the church. And this feels really important to me to mention because as a survivor of childhood abuse and sexual assault, whose perpetrators were both like in the church and also not in the church, um, I've often found that whenever I've disclosed my experiences of abuse, I'm often told to just like, let the experiences go or find forgiveness for the people who have harmed me. And even in some cases, I've received a heavy load of blame for my lack of forgiveness for the perpetrators, often being told that this lack of forgiveness, this lack of forgiveness harms myself, it harms other people. And also that if I was really ready to heal, then I would just forgive and forget my abuse and my assault. And as many of my years of therapy kind of started to give me the courage to speak more openly about the harm that I've experienced, especially including harm from members within the church, I've been told things like, oh, the church is perfect, but the people aren't. And it's seriously like such a mind fuck for me to know that many people consider childhood abuse and sexual assault to be these like mere human imperfections that are better ignored. And my only option for healing is then to be offered some type of allegiance to an institution that protects those perpetrators instead. And I really feel like in this popular approach to forgiveness, we often skip the first and most essential step, which Elise alluded to earlier, and this is to stay with and protect the survivor. When we ask survivors to forgive and forget without first offering clear and protected access to trauma-informed victims to trauma-informed victim protection and advocacy, prosecution, healthcare, suicide prevention, and ongoing mental health care. What we're really doing is asking survivors to disappear. We're asking them to allow, to defer, to bow to the needs of an individual, a culture, or an institution that does not or cannot or will not protect them because they're too busy protecting themselves. When we ask survivors to forgive and forget, we shirk the call of our baptismal covenants to mourn with those that mourn because we're also too busy protecting ourselves from sitting in the discomfort, the shock, the trauma, and the awakening to our complicit attitudes. Often, we ask survivors to forgive and forget so we don't have to wake up and act. I feel really hopeful that the publicity this issue is receiving will eventually lend itself to systemic change that centers and perfect protect survivors. But honestly, like I've been dealing with this issue for like so long that I feel really cynical and I don't really find myself like breathing any kind of sigh of relief. I feel really frustrated that it's taken a national news report for people to believe and take seriously the experiences and concerns that survivors have been speaking to for years. This is a problem that changes many hands at the upper levels of leadership in the church. And each had an opportunity to pause and say, wait, this can't be right. Each pair of hands had an opportunity to enact change. And since no change came about, that means that in each pair of hands, a choice was made to stay silent and complicit and therefore benefit from a system that abandons the least of these. 
those condescending, we love you sisters at general conference sure hits different when your abusers also give priesthood blessings, speak over the pulpit, and are given callings instead of disciplinary counsels when abuse is disclosed. So Elise, I really appreciated that question that you shared earlier. What what does it mean to repent? Just like you said, it means to acknowledge that there's a problem. It means that we lay our sins bare and to have our right hand know what our left hand has done and then change. I, I'm sure both of us will be watching to see what approach the church takes toward moving forward from the, art, from the Associated Press article. However much we'd like to collectively disown the members that offend us, to cut them out and single them out like an offending eye, we can't, quote, People aren't perfect our way out of this situation because the church is its people. Until the church is able to do differently from David, who believes that his only sin is against an ambiguous and distant yet punitive God, and instead turn to look into the eyes of the people who were harmed, until there is that widespread systemic change, we will see another Associated Press article in 30 years saying the same thing, exposing the generations of survivors in the shadow cast by a system that both nurtures and pardons the very abuse it claims to prevent and heal. So as we were going through just the many psalms that were offered in this week's sections, I came across Psalm 94 and I actually think that this is the same psalm that Reverend Dr. Will Gaffney referenced um, when we read her rewritten psalm in last week's episode. It also feels really relevant and powerful here. Psalm 94 reads, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongeth, O God, to whom vengeance belongeth, show thyself, lift up thyself, thou judge of the earth, and render a reward to the proud. Lord, how long shall the wicked... How long shall the wicked triumph? How long shall they utter and speak hard things? All the workers of the iniquity boast themselves. They break in pieces thy people, O Lord, and afflict thine heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. And yet they say, the Lord shall not see. Understand, ye brutish among the people, and ye fools, when will ye be wise? The God that made the ear, shall he not hear? The God that formed the eye, shall he not see? The God that chasteneth the unbeliever, shall he not also correct you? He that teacheth man knowledge, shall he not know? The Lord knoweth the thoughts of man, that they are vanity. Blessed is the man whom thou chasteneth, O Lord, and teachest him out of thine own books, that thou mayest give him rest from the days of adversity. For the Lord will not cast off his people, neither will he forsake his inheritance. But judgment shall return unto righteousness, and all the upright in heart shall follow it. Who will rise up for me against the evildoers? Or who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? Without you, Lord, who has been my help, my soul had almost dwelt in silence. When I said, My foot slippeth, thy mercy, O Lord, held me up. In the multitude of my thoughts within me, thy comforts delight my soul. They gather themselves together against the soul of the righteous and condemn the innocent blood. But the Lord is my defense, and my God is the rock of my refuge. And he shall bring upon them their own iniquity, and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. Yea, 
the Lord our God shall cut them off, end quote. This is just like such a powerful psalm, especially um, for survivors and victims of assault. And I really appreciate reading it through that perspective and even sometimes imagining Bathsheba responding to David's Psalm 51 with this Psalm 94. And there's a lot of power in recentering the experiences of survivors when situations like this come arise. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I think another, in my research, another psalm that I came across that could do this very thing that you suggested, like offer Bathsheba as the narrator, is actually Psalms 55. And I don't think that we are going to cover this in depth today, given the weighty and kind of triggering nature of the content in Psalms 55, but also in this episode already. But there are a few things that I think we'd like to just share briefly So if you're interested, we really recommend the article that's titled, Oh, That I Had Wings Like a Dove, Psalm 55 and Breaking the Silence About Violence Against Women by Francis Clopper. Because in this article, Clopper looks at the suffering in Psalm 55 from the perspective of women as victims of sexual violence. And it's really interesting that the themes and parallels between survivors in biblical times and survivors today are quite striking and this article highlights that the or, and this article highlights things like the narrator's urgent petition to be heard asking god to show themselves to listen and to respond clopper also highlights the fact that uh, the woman if if we're imagining a woman as the narrator of psalm 55 the woman probably knew the her perpetrator we also see discussions of emotional and verbal abuse and the desire and the desire and trauma response to flee and disconnect oneself from yourself. Speaking to the power of Psalms of Lament, Klopper writes, The kind of lament spoken in Psalm 55 is indeed a form of mourning, not about death, but an existential wail from a woman who suffers from the inability to speak as a consequence of rape. Lament is the language of suffering, and the function of the Psalms of Lament is to provide the means for its authors to bear the unbearable and cope with suffering and injustice. Laments make it possible for victims to name the fear and violence, and to break the silence which victors have erected around them. It is not merely a vehicle for emotional release. It is a multifaceted human emotion that speaks with political, social, and religious voices. It calls God to account, and at the same time it calls God er, and at the same time it calls upon God for aid and relief. It accuses and it praises. It is deeply spiritual, as well as subversive and political. The Psalms of Lament are also about trust that God is willing and able to come to the supplicant's assistance. Psalm 55 concludes with a bold statement of confidence in God's presence in spite of the praying woman's experience to the contrary. It says, But as for me, I trust in you. These words are at the same time a challenge to God to act. End quote. I really, so powerful. Yeah, so powerful. And I really like thinking about the Psalms this way. And I know that we'll talk about this in a minute, but the way that Psalms can help us bear the unbearable and cope with suffering and injustice. So maybe one thing that you might consider this week, if you're interested, you might consider reading David's repentance Psalm in Psalm 51. Then you might read what we could consider to be Bathsheba's lament in Psalm 55 and pair that with Psalm 94, like Channing read. 
then you could consider their relevance to our modern day context in relation to the Associated Press article. Oh, yes. Yes. So that when we were talking about oh, what do we want to when we want to talk about covering the Psalms this week, one of the things that really came forward for us was just being able to draw a little further on what we talked about last week, where the Psalms really are an expression of the spectrum of human emotion and experience. We see a lot of Psalms written in the context of joy, praise, and celebration. And we also see a lot written in the experience of defense, fear, abandonment, insecurity, instability, and shame. For me, I like to imagine that these Psalms were carried and perfected in the heart trying on and trying out words and ideas and rhythm before ever even placing pen to paper. And though this, this imagining probably isn't historically accurate, I also like to imagine these psalms being written in and discovered in personal journals that contain our innermost thoughts and that are read years and years later from an outside perspective looking in. I like to imagine that the psalms are first personal before they were ever included in the Museum of Scripture. And so as we kind of talked about, these psalms really do cover this huge, broad range of human emotion. And as Elise and I are both like artists and creators ourselves, we found that the creative process really can be a way to work through and move through difficult experiences in our life. And I really love this quote from author Clarissa Pinkola Estes. She says about creativity, quote, creativity is the ability to respond to all that goes on around us, to choose from the hundreds of possibilities of thought, feeling, action, and reaction that arise within us, and then to put these together in a unique response, expression, or message that carries moment, passion, and meaning, end quote. And so as I was thinking about like, okay, what does it look like? What does it mean to process our experiences, our emotions, the things that we're going through in the present moment through creativity? Um, I really turned to artists and creators that I feel like have done something similar in their own work. So I was really pulled to the paintings of Frida Kahlo, who is a Mexican painter, and she paints all kinds of different scenes. And some of them are are quite like personally involved. Um, a lot of her paintings focus around her experiences with uh, trauma and chronic illness. I also appreciate the artwork of, of Anna Mendieta, who is a Cuban-American eco-feminist performance artist. I really love seeing all of her pieces, especially um, seeing them kind of all come together. And I love the way that she turned her own experience and passion into art that can be appreciated even decades later. I also think of author Toni Morrison, who wrote the book Beloved, and as well as Maya Angelou, who is a Black poet, who wrote I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. And I remember reading this in high school and just being totally moved by her courage and her bravery, sharing her life's experience. And finally, the Indigenous American poet Joy Harjo. I've really appreciated reading in the last couple of weeks her new collection titled Conflict Resolution for Holy Beings. 
And so as we look at these artists and see the way that they've kind of transformed or transmuted or alchemized their own personal experience into beautiful creations that can then be shared with others, um, it can be a little intimidating, right? When we're looking at like famous artists who have like gotten success with their creative pieces and then we're looking at our own selves like, well, I can't make that. So should I really be participating in art if I can't be this amazing artist creator. And to that, Elise and I emphatically say, hell yes. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes absolutely. No question. <laughs> and this is because creativity, it's not about the product that you've created mm-hmm. at the end. It's about what you experience while you're creating it. It's not about making something stunning or exemplary, but it's about how it feels in your body and in your heart to hold the paintbrush or to move your hands or to move your body. And so you don't have to be skilled and you don't have to be famous to create something that's incredibly and deeply meaningful. So we kind of brainstormed some of the ways that we like to practice our creative efforts. And at least for me, I don't know about you, Elise, but I kind of am like a jack of all trades. I just have my hand in like literally every mm-hmm. pot that I could possibly choose from. Um, and I just get to like pick and choose based on what I'm feeling that day. I love to paint with watercolors. I really enjoy writing poems and essays. And I like color and coloring books and singing with my favorite songs. And then when I'm feeling like especially needing to keep my hands busy, I will crochet or embroider. And when I'm feeling really big emotions, I like to dance in my front room. But I don't know about you, Elise. How do you like to practice creativity? Yeah, well, I recently started doing a live nude figure drawing class, Mm -hmm. which is so amazing. And it's also such a good practice twofold. One, it's such a good practice at being a beginner, which like, I don't love the feeling of being a beginner, but it's good practice at leaning into that. And it's also a great practice at like appreciating bodies, all bodies as Mm -hmm. beautiful and stunning. And like their form is very fitting for their, um, the way that they move through the world. So, uh, so I have come a long way from a few months ago when I tried to draw Channing in the park and like we have this long-standing joke that really I drew her and she really did look like a spooky lizard and I showed it to my partner and he was like this should be the cover of like things that go bump in the night or like scary stories to tell around the campfire because it was so awful so practicing that um yeah I also really love I love reading poetry I love writing essays music absolutely I think Music is a fantastic way to express and process your feelings. It's Mm -hmm. good when people offer you words when you don't have them for yourself. Uh, So as we're kind of thinking about like the ways that we practice creativity, sometimes, especially if like creativity or art seems a little bit intimidating or daunting, it can be helpful to have some ideas. So as you're thinking about Psalms in the context of using creativity to work through and process your lived experience and emotions, here are some ideas that might be helpful. One of the things that we talked about is called a commonplace book. And this is the practice of basically like getting a notebook and writing down. This was commonplace books were really popular before you could like print things off. And so you would have your commonplace notebook, just a notebook, and you would write down any and everything that caught your attention, that inspired you, that meant something to you, that sparked something in you. So you could write down poems or passages or 
quotes from essays or you could draw in it and you would really create this really meditative poetic process or this poetic creation of this commonplace book that you could go back and refer to finding all of the passages that you love or all of the poems that you love all kept in one place. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Kind of going along with that. I really loved the idea that you presented in last week's episode where you had all of the Psalms, like some Psalms of Thanksgiving printed out and the young women who are taking your class just cut out all of the different words and kind of did like a refrigerator poetry practice of putting, of making their own Psalms. And I'm like, yeah, that deserves another mention here. So if you haven't already, like go print some pages of Psalms out or even just don't worry about the Psalm part and just go get yourself a little magnet fridge poetry kit and just start creating. Another thing that I really am into right now is journaling and decorating the margins of my journal or even like whole pages of my journal with stickers and washi tape. And I've found this to be like really fun. And my inner child just like really appreciates putting on like puffy little kitty stickers at the corner bottom of my page and um, just being able to share like my innermost like thoughts and experiences and have like a really beautiful at the end of it have a really beautiful um, collection of thoughts and experiences with like super cute stickers who does not want that Sometimes we know that like painting or drawing can kind of be an intimidating experience. So look for other ways to express your creativity. Maybe you want to experiment with collage, or maybe you want to try out some home decor, or maybe you want to curate a Pinterest board or a playlist for your feelings or your experiences. Again, like we mentioned, you can dance to your favorite songs and maybe for a little bit of extra flair, you can add some ribbon wands or some waist hoops. Maybe you want to sign up for a creative writing class or my personal favorite, color in a coloring book. I particularly like the ones with the little kawaii, like cute little Japanese kawaii characters or my other favorite when I'm in a mood is to get a giant scripted curse word coloring <laughs> coloring page. And it's like so like pretty and it's surrounded by flowers, but it says like the F word <laughs> right in the middle and it's so perfect. So these are just some ideas to spark your creativity or to spark your practice of using art as a processing tool for how you're feeling and what you're experiencing. And we really think that this can be a valuable practice, especially with what is happening in the context of this episode and church and the news. And yeah, it's really just so incredible. And additionally, the other thing that I wanted to recommend to kind of as a, an additional pairing for this episode, we did an interview with Brooke Andrioli Uh, at the end of our polygamy series last year. And if you're looking for tips and tricks and ways to process through difficult emotions, especially as they relate to the church, in that episode, Brooke provides quite a few um, strategies that you can implement. Um, So I also highly recommend going back and listening to that episode. I think we'd like to just end with one uplifting creative quote from Clarissa Pinkla Estes. She writes, quote, protect your creative life. Say, I love my creative life more than I love cooperating with my own oppression. 
Let no thought, no man, no woman, no mate, no friend, no religion, no job, and no crabbed voice force you into a creative famine. If necessary, show your incisors. Let neither your own complexes, your culture, intellectual detritus, nor any high-sounding, aristocratic, pedagogical, or political law-law steal it away from you. End quote. Clarissa Pinkola Estes, the master storyteller, basically telling us all to go create something. So as you move from this episode into the world, bring your creativity with you. And until then, we'll see you next week. Bye! Friends, thank you so much for joining us today for another episode of the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We know your time and space is sacred, and we are so grateful to have spent ours with you. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be so happy if you left us a loving rating on iTunes and Spotify so other seekers can find us. Financial donations support the many hours of research, work, and devotion to each episode, as well as the everyday costs of creating and publishing the podcast. You can support us on Patreon or through a simple Venmo donation and help us create a world where creators, artists, activists, and beauty makers are valued and paid for their labor. Find us on those platforms and on Instagram as The Faithful Feminists. We are deeply grateful for your kindness and encouragement. We love you so much, and we hope to spend more time with you again soon. Bye, friends. Bye.